First passage we're reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers and murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The second passage this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing on in this series in the epistles, the pastoral epistles, which is prefaced by the texts that come out of 1 Timothy that were to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to us. And that deposit, as we've talked about, is the gospel. We're to guard it. We have an outline that we're going to be walking through here as we look at those particular books in this particular series. We're not going to go verse by verse by verse from beginning of them to the end, but rather we're going to use this outline as we try to get to the heart of the ways in which Paul instructed Timothy to guard that deposit. He did it in four different areas, I think. The first area that he stressed that Timothy makes sure he does well is to raise up good leaders within the churches. Both to Timothy and to Titus, his admonition is raise up good leaders. That's one area. That's one way in which we guard that deposit. The second area is to guard doctrine, to guard teaching. And actually this morning we're going to look at that particular area and continue in the next week's. And then to guard the mission. Make sure you get the mission right. There's lots of things that the church can do. But what should the church do? And I think when we get that right, it guards the gospel. When we get it wrong, we get ourselves into trouble. And so we'll talk about what the mission should be. And then finally, the the actual personal lives of the church itself. The godliness of the church and how they go about attaining that in the proper way. I think guards the gospel. And so we'll look at those four areas over the next few weeks. We'll take a bit of a break as we come to Thanksgiving. Um, We have our Thanksgiving Sunday, which is the, the week before Thanksgiving. The following week we will be away for Thanksgiving. And then through Advent we'll take a bit of a break and pick it up again after the first of the year. So the next four weeks we'll be in these pastoral epistles and then we'll pick it up after the first of the year again. But this morning... We want to go back to what we said last week and just remind you a bit of that and then move on a little in this whole idea of one of the areas in which we guard the deposit is that we guard what gets taught. Um, Last week, the title was The Intoxicating Effect That Effects the Church. And we talked about that intoxicating effect that sometimes 
can fall upon those who teach and those who get into air as they teach. And one of the points we make that we go back to is in verse 6. The problem here at Ephesus where Timothy was sent back to bring correction to the church and to shore up the leadership and the teaching was this statement where it says certain persons, certain persons by swerving from these things. By swerving from the deposit, the gospel, have gotten the church into trouble. And what we talked about last week is how that progression often happens when certain persons begin to get off track. One of two things can happen. What should happen is that leadership should step in. Leadership who we guard carefully and we choose carefully. One of the requirements of leadership is they ought not to be new believers. One other requirement, we'll talk about these as we get after the first of the year. Another requirement is that they ought to be able to teach. And there's a reason for that. Because they're the ones who are to come when someone gets off track and to bring correction to that. Now, if they're new believers, they may not be broad enough to bring correction to that. They might not just know the, the, the pit holes and the potholes that are out there to be hit with this little deviation, which ends up being a big deviation eventually if it's not dealt with. Or they might not be teachers, and so they just don't know how to bring that correction. So you begin to see the wisdom and the overarching wisdom of raising up godly leaders. That will be the last place we will go in this whole idea, in this whole outline of Guarding the deposit, but all the way along the way, I hope you begin to see the value and the need of leadership within the church. It's paramount that we do a good job. But what happens here in uh, in this particular case is these certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away. It says into vain discussion, and and obviously Timothy is now sent in to correct them, but the correction doesn't go necessarily all that well sometimes. Sometimes the the best case scenario is that it goes well. The person accepts that admonition. The person is willing to correct their misunderstandings and get it right and acknowledge they were wrong. But oftentimes that's not what happens. Oftentimes what happens is they begin to swerve away from things. They begin to swerve away from what verse 5 says. Because it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these. You see, obviously, uh, these people were not people given to correction. They had swerved away from the aim of love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And they were not taking correction well. And the danger of that is what it does to the church. Now, last week, somebody came to me and said, I butchered the king's English. And I butchered it when I said, what happens to these people is they get lost. And when you get lost, the danger is if you don't ask directions, you get what? Loster, which which I butchered the king's English. But the more I thought about that, the more I thought I didn't butcher it. Women get more lost, but guys get loster. <laughs> they get loster and loster and loster is what happens to them. But however it is, that's, that's really a good picture. You, you, you get lost, 
You don't ask direction or ask directions. You don't ask for correction, and you just get more and more lost. And I quoted another. In fact, my son's pastor from Indianapolis. I I want to read this quote again because it is so insightful. It is exactly what happens in these kinds of circumstances. It is the dynamic that happens in the human heart when the human heart swerves away from what it says here, the charge is love, and issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. When teachers get away from that and get away from those three things, this is oftentimes what happens. Let me quote him. He says this, We get to the heart of the matter as to what is going on with this key phrase, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make certain assertions or confident assertions. Here is the motivational pay dirt. The problem here is not just the false teaching. This thing took off because these teachers love being the authorities. They love the position of prominence. They love the power of a crowd listening to them. They love the sense of having little groupies or followers. They discovered that people would do what they said and they loved it, not for God's glory, but for their own. And do you know what, what is even more frightening? They had no idea what they were talking about. They were lost. Can this happen to a church? Absolutely. Do you think you could become like this? Sure you could. All you have to do is to believe something passionately, be fairly articulate, gain a few followers, be convinced that you are special, and start to make overconfident, self-promoting statements that have less to do with the truth than they have to do with you. Then start to believe that you've got all the answers for people in the church. Become angry when people don't listen to you. Strategize what you would do if you were in charge and sow subtle seeds of discord among the people. It won't be long until you've convinced, you're convinced that God is on your side and that you won't even see the damage that you're doing. You'll be intoxicated with the mirror of ministry. You'll be angry when people question you. You'll find every reason in the world why everyone else is wrong and what you don't even realize is you've lost your way. It's no wonder that Paul warns Timothy about the problem of pride with new converts who move too quickly into leadership roles. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Every one of us ought to tremble at the thought because none of us is entirely immune. Be careful not to use the ministry for yourself. I pray that these words ring in your ears when the text says certain persons swerving from these things. It's persons. It's that kind of dynamic that gets the church in trouble. And the safeguard is that the leadership needs to come in and deal with it. The leadership is wise enough and mature enough and apt to teach enough and not too young a convert that they recognize it and they can come in and they can bring restoration. That they can come in and bring counsel. And, and the best case scenario is that that person would respond, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. The interesting thing about this that I share, the thing that I, I just was stuck with as I, as I looked at this text and I looked at, at Paul's admonition to Timothy and this whole 
teaching in the epistles was it was only four years. It was only four years since Paul had taught these people who swerved away. Four years since they got it right from, from the apostles' mouth. They got the apostolic teaching right from the horse's mouth. And now they were swerving away from it. We need to, to realize that and recognize that and the danger. We'll come back to that a little later and talk about it. One of the things I talked about was some other safeguards. Let me quickly go through those and then we're going to spend some time on the last one. But we didn't spend much on time last week. How do we safeguard that? How do we, how do we make sure that we guard the deposit, you as people, in the pew? How do you do that? What's your role in guarding that deposit? Certainly raising up godly leaders, but, but beyond that, as you sit there, how do you guard it? I think you do it by listening carefully to what's taught. You listen carefully. You, 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 you trust, but you verify. You don't just take it because somebody says it. And today they're saying it everywhere. Be careful. Be careful to, 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 to verify, to trust. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you put yourself under. Um, again, in the church setting, I think we have to be careful that we're not critical, but, but we don't want to be naive. The second thing is that you must always view the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. The, the, understand the progressive nature of Revelation. That's the way God has chosen to do it. It's one story, it's one book, and it's progressively revealed to us. And you always should interpret the Old Testament in, in, in the picture of the New Testament, of shining it back onto the, New Test, or to the Old Testament, progressive revelation of it. Not that that revelation has changed, it just pro- was progressively given. You understand what I mean by that when I say it's progressive. It doesn't continue to be progressive. The canon is closed with the book of Revelation, but the progression given in the scriptures is progressive. And the other thing, another thing is that every passage, every text has one meaning. And the meaning of a text, what it means to, to, to take the scriptures and to exegete them, to unfold them correctly, to do expository preaching, if you will, is to, to determine what the author was saying in the text. Preaching is not deciding you want to talk about something and going and finding a text to support it. You may want to talk about something, but make sure that the text you go that supports it is supporting that, that that's what the text teaches. Don't superimpose what you want the text to say on the text. Let the text speak. We, we need to be careful that we get the meaning of what the text is saying. Now, there are various applications sometimes to that, various ways we apply that to our lives, but there is only one meaning that the author had. And you need that application to flow out of first discerning what that meaning is and then decide whether that application is appropriate to that meaning in the text. Uh, resist, resist statements that say, this is what this text means to me. It really doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it meant to the author. Get that first. And then make application in light of what it means to the author. This is how it applies to me. 
And again, do that in the counsel of others as you discern those things. The fourth thing, compare Scripture with Scripture. Um, you, you need to know this this revelation. You need to be careful before you jump into teaching it that you know the whole counsel. Not not perfectly. You don't have to be a Bible scholar, but but that's why the admonition is to be careful about new believers. They they haven't even had time to know it. Um, to put them in teaching positions. They they need to understand that you compare scripture with scripture. The the, the more obscure text is always interpreted in the light of the clearer text. There are some texts that seem to say something, but in the light of the totality of what Scripture is saying, you must interpret those more obscure texts. That's comparing Scripture with Scripture. Otherwise, somebody will take an obscure text, and you can, you can promote about anything you want. But, but typically that is done by taking an obscure text that was not taken in the context of the entirety of Scripture. And then finally, this is where I ended last week, and this is where I want to pick up this morning. Be gospel-centric as you listen. Be gospel-centric as you listen to what's being taught. If you're having things taught to you again and again and again, week after week after week, and you don't have the gospel in that, that should send off all kinds of alarms for you. If you're not hearing the gospel clearly as, as things are declared, be careful. Be careful. And I know that I'm a broken record. I know that I'm a broken record in this. But I will risk being a broken record to say to you, this is exactly what was happening in this text. Exactly the error that was happening. Look at what it says. It says, Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. One of, the, one of the areas that people will get themselves in trouble often is when they begin to deal with the law. If you're, going to, if you're going to have somebody who gets off into air, oftentimes, most times, it is, it is a misunderstanding of the Old Testament revelation to us, particularly the law. They, they will get it distorted and they will leave the gospel out of it. They will misunderstand the progressiveness of revelation sometimes. And it just gets in all kinds of trouble. It gets people in all kinds of trouble. The, the, the value of gospel centrality is, it, it is this. It isn't that when, when you're gospel centric, doesn't mean you know everything about scripture. You don't know all of it, but you know that core thing. You know the core. You know the central um, theme of this book, which is the gospel. This gospel is one story. Now, it's not, it's not simplistic in the sense, but in one sense it's simple. It's a simply the declaration of the gospel. Not in a simplistic way. I don't want to minimize study. And we need to study and all of that. But make sure at the core of it you understand it is the gospel. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ and all He means. That's what this book is about. That's, that's what all 66 books that were brought together by God are talking about. The centrality of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the gospel. 
And when you know that, when you have that, and you know what the gospel is, it doesn't mean you know every air, but you'll begin to smell air. You'll begin to sense that there's just something not quite right here. There's an emphasis that, that just seems to be off. And, and oftentimes those airs are not, are not huge airs. I mean, we're not talking here about uh, the Trinity and heretical kinds of things. They're talking about small air that happened here. But it, but it was a sense that it, that small air gets way out here. And, and that's the way air is. And, and the hope is, if we're gospel-centric, that we, we catch it early enough to not get way out here with it and get tied in. It's interesting to me, in just the flow of this, we've already preached this, I'm not going to go back to this, but in, in verse 12 here, we, we talked about at one point, if you're going to guard the gospel, you must treasure the gospel. And so we spent a couple of weeks looking at how Paul treasures the gospel here, beginning at verse 12 and on through the end of the chapter. You can go back and get those messages. I don't want to reiterate all of that. But it's interesting to me that, that after Paul talks about this heir to Timothy, after he writes about this heir, he just goes back and glories in the gospel. He just goes back and glories in what God had done for him. There's something about us glorying in the gospel, treasuring the gospel, treasuring Christ and all he means to us. When we do that, we will recognize heir better. And we will recognize air sooner. And though we may not know what the air is, we may not be able to define the air, we will sense this just isn't right. You won't get hooked, hook, line, and sinker as quickly. So be gospel-centric. Be careful in that. Um, the air with the law, the misuse of the law, is, is rampant all over. Um, the, the law is not an easy thing to fully understand. Um, let, let me read a quote to you. Let me, let me make this point. This, this is a crucial point to make here. And I, I have to be careful how I make it because I don't want to minimize study. I, I think you know me well enough and have been around, I've been around long enough to know that I think we need to think. We need to think hard about our faith and about what we believe and, and, and just not run over the top of things and deal with tough issues and tough questions in our hearts and in our lives. And so don't, don't hear this as a minimization of this, but I, as really a warning. I, uh, I just recently um, picked up a copy of a book, and I, it just came out, actually. Um, it, it's entitled The End of the Law. The author of this book, actually, for some of you who have this perspective, um, Jason Meyer is the author of this book. Um, Jason Meyer is going to be the successor of John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist. He's the, he's the chosen one by the elders to be his successor in a year or two. He will, he will take over at Bethlehem. He's the one that's in the pipeline for all of that. I don't know exactly where it's all at, but that's, that's where it's headed. And he wrote this book. Um, Jason, interestingly, has <laughs> it's, it's an interesting progression here. Jason actually went to the same college that I went to graduated from there and then went off from other places after that. But, but it's interesting how God has orchestrated him being the successor there. But he writes this book, which is about the Mosaic law, the law, the law that these guys were getting wrong in this, in this particular issue at Ephesus. But what I want you to hear is, is the couple of the, or one of the uh, uh, recommendations on the back of the book. 
And this particular recommendation comes from John Piper, who he will be his successor. And I have great admiration for John. I, I, I make an apology. In 1980s, he, uh, I came into contact with John. He's had a, a deep influence in my life as far as, as what we talked about in the fact of, of, of exegesis of Scripture, of expository preaching, all of those kinds of things to get the meaning of the text. He bleeds Bible. He's committed. He's ruthlessly committed to the truth of Scripture. And he is brilliant. He is brilliant. And this is what he writes about this book. Just listen. For the last 40 years of my ministry, no biblical issue has proved more recurrent or more vexing than the nature of the Mosaic Law as it relates to the Gospel and the New Covenant. The pastoral implications for how you preach the Gospel, aim at sanctification, comfort strugglers, give assurance, and admit people into membership in the church are huge. Jason Meyer is a good guide. I found myself writing yes in the margins repeatedly. And there were enough aha moments of fresh discovery to make me want to keep going. I thank God for the younger scholar. His book is a precious gift to the church. That gives me pause when I read somebody that I respect so deeply to say, no biblical issue. And John doesn't, doesn't exaggerate statements like that. No biblical issue has proved more recurrent or more vexing than the nature of the Mosaic law. I say that as a, as a, as a warning to us. Be careful. Be careful when you begin to, to teach. Don't go into it cavalierly. cavalierly. Don't go into it without understanding that it's a weighty thing to teach others. Understand that, that these are not always easy things. But I also say it to the sense of keep the gospel central. If you keep it central, it helps. It helps as you come to things like this. And what was happening here at Ephesus is that was not happening. These men were going off in areas they did not have any... any right to go off into. They were teaching things that they didn't know anything about. He, he used a strong language. He says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Be careful. Now, don't not, don't not aspire to teach, but go at it with humility. Go at it with humility that men like John Piper say it's the most vexing thing he's ever tried to understand and he tries to understand it. There's stuff still being written. I mean, volumes and volumes and volumes. I just recently picked up this volume. This volume who comes from somebody else you may Steve Wellam who, who pastored a church when I first came here up in the northeast part of South Dakota now teaches at Southern Seminary. But this is about the covenants, about the Mosaic Covenant. It's no easy read. I'm, I say all that to say, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to humbly approach teaching. Humbly approach how we listen to others. And keeping the gospel central will protect you. Will protect you to not somehow think you've got it all figured out. 
and, and uh, you go off without dependency upon God in the midst of that. Let me, let me show you something here as I close. And then next week, we're going we're gonna to look at chapter 4 more fully. The part that was read this morning, we're going to look at apostasy. We're going to look at why what I'm talking about matters. Why it is so important to talk about this. Why it is so important to guard this deposit in the area of teaching and to give the warnings that we're giving here. Um, We'll do that more fully. But I want to say this as I close here this morning in the next few minutes. Hear this clearly. As I look at these pastoral epistles, as I look at what, um, what Paul writes, I say this to you this morning. False teaching is to be expected. I, I can't get any other read out of what I'm seeing here in these epistles. False teaching is to be expected. Don't be naive about it. It is something that's going to continually face the church. That's why I think Paul wrote four years earlier. Remember? Take, let me take you back there. We've read it nearly every week. But listen. I know that after my departure, he's writing to, he's t- talking to the elders at Ephesus. This is four years before now. He sends Timothy back to this church. He started four years ago. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul said it before he left. Look at a couple other passages. Look at 2 Timothy with me this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. Listen to what it says. He's talking now again, Paul, to Timothy about the church at Ephesus. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those that are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Two people. He names them who've come in and denying the resurrection here at Ephesus. Listen to one other text. And it's Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Here's the admonition. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. Again, a warning. Expect it. It's going to come. And then you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. The text we'll pick up next week. Listen to what it says. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything was created by God 
is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it was made holy by the word of God and prayer. But again, the admonition is, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days, we must be careful, people, to expect. That's not a negative statement. To to expect that false teaching will be a battle for the church. So again, the, the importance of some of these other areas we will talk about will become incredibly important. And the reason and what we'll talk about next week, let me whet your appetite a bit as we come back to this text, this statement, that the church, the church in general, church at Richland, is comprised, is always comprised of people who are not genuine. The church, the wheat and the tares. Remember that illustration? The wheat and the tares grew up together. They wanted to run in and rip up the tares. And Jesus said, if you do, you rip up the wheat because you can't tell the difference. Let it go. Let it go. Wheat and tares grew up together in the church. The church is always comprised of people who are not genuine. The church is always comprised of people who have the potential of doing what happened to these certain persons who swerve from the truth and when correction is brought, they swerved away from things like a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we need to listen to what Paul tells Timothy. We need to listen. We need to be careful. Air can come so easily and, and I'll, I'll finish with this. I want to go back to what I talked about last week. I told you of a time in my own ministry here at Richland when, uh, when some things were opening up to me. What was really, I didn't give you all the details of that last week. What was really happening is I was starting to see the Trinity in ways that I'd not seen the Trinity before. And because I was seeing the Trinity in ways I'd not seen it before, I was starting to see this whole idea of the incarnation in ways that I've never seen, that that God became man, the the person of Christ, the the humanity of Christ. I was starting to see some of those things. And and it was was a wonderful time in my life as God began to to bring some things for me to, to read and to study and to just see that application and it had, it had personal application to some stuff that was happening here at Richland at the time that was very helpful to me in it being able to minister to people and needs and hurts in the congregation. But I told you that I came perilously close to air during those days. The, the, the edge was razor sharp of air. These things were so wonderful to my soul that I started, I started to push on them, and and I was coming perilously close to crossing that razor edge of truth. I actually was coming perilously close to to crossing it over into error, into ultimately a heresy that had developed within the church, unbeknownst to me, a few hundred years ago. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? There's nothing new under the sun. But the problem was I, I hadn't read about that and I told you about somebody coming into my office. They're not, they, don't, they aren't here. It's not one of you. Came into my office, sat down with me and said, have you ever heard about this particular thing? And I, <laughs> I hadn't. But I tell you what, as soon as they left, I spent some time finding out. And, and I, though I had not crossed that edge, 
I, I, I might have had God not sent that person to me to, to warn me. It was a mercy of God to bring that person, though I didn't like that encounter very much. You don't like it. And I told you what I used it in the, in the application last week of what happens when, when you are in error and somebody comes to you. All kinds of gymnastics go on in your heart. All kinds of stuff happens. I can see why people swerve away from love. And appear, you, you're, you're out there. You're vulnerable. How do you respond to that? Do you do it humbly? Or do you just push on through? And God in His mercy brought that to me in such a way that, and, and helped me to be able to, to respond. Part of it, I say to you, I hadn't crossed the edge yet. It's easier to respond when you haven't gone all the way. I didn't have to go back. I didn't have to backtrack. But I was so grateful. I was so grateful for that. But it reminded me. It reminded me, teach humbly. Be careful. Be careful. If you think you found something new, my goodness, be careful. Go find somebody else saying it before you make it the centerpiece of what you're teaching at that moment. We, we need to be careful. We need to, 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 to understand that this issue of guarding the deposit is no small thing. Guarding it in relation to truth, in relation to teaching, is incredibly important. We'll talk more about it next week. Let's, uh, let's just stop and glory in the gospel for a while. Will you stand? <clears throat> The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend The agonies of Calvary You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son Drank the bitter cup reserved for me Your blood has washed away my sin Jesus, thank you The Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus, thank you Once your enemy Now seated at your table Jesus, thank you By a perfect sacrifice I've been brought near Your enemy you made your friend Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace Your mercy and your kindness know no end Your blood has washed away my sin Jesus, thank you, the Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you, the Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you, 
appoint your enemy now seated at your table Jesus thank you share the end of the story I almost forgot to do that I I referenced this book by Steve Wellham, a guy who was up in northeastern South Dakota when I came here some 25, 30 years ago. Went off to teach in Canada and now is at Southern and just recently wrote this book on the kingdom through covenant. The reason I share that is because I'm grateful, God's mercy, when I was close to that razor's edge and, and was doing lots of research after that encounter in my office, this is one of the first guys I called. Steve. I just I needed to ask some questions. Steve was broader than I was. He was he he was somebody who could help me to be careful that I didn't step over where I shouldn't step. Grateful for God's mercy. We need people around us. We need to be careful in the sense of accountability. That again it's a reiteration of, of leadership. It's a reiteration of don't go out there as a lone ranger. God's faithful to help us. He's given us the church to help us protect us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will will help us, Lord, as a church. Help us to 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 guard this gospel well, to, to be careful, Father, and to 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 listen well, to to uh, to keep the gospel at the center. Help us to know the gospel so well and to be so thrilled with it. It's such a treasure to us that we just, we just smell air whether we'll ever be able to define it or not. Lord, I pray that would be the case. And to that end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.